You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. We're going to do Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to carry on through verse 38. That is going to be our morning. And then um, after that, we'll get into it some, but I'll talk a little bit about just prophecy in general. I mentioned uh, in previous weeks that when we get into prophets, which if, if we even get into them, I should probably even say that, like if we dare to peel our Bible pages apart in the areas where we're getting into Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, like there's work that we do even in, in figuring out what on earth we're reading because it's uncharted territory for many of us and it's a confusing read. So we'll take some just pieces in place for that. So we'll start, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 16. The word of the Lord came, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness, uncleanness, of women, a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? But I had concerns, the Lord speaking, for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When though you... Uh, When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, that there would be the nations. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you, the ESV version, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone uh, uh, from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully obey my rules. You'll be able to do the things that I've asked you to do. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. That's a weird word to say. I pronounce it differently every time. Sometimes I add an L to say cleanliness. And I will summon the grain, uh, the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine on you. I will make the fruit of the tree and uh, make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you, 
Israel will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Is it not for your sake that I will act, declare? It is not for your sake that I will act, declare to the Lord. Uh, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being a des- the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste <clears throat> and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during the appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You read a long passage like that, you feel like you have to be like, you know, the word of the, the, word of the Lord. And you're supposed to say, thanks be to God. You probably don't know that if you have like a Bible church background, but that's kind of a little thing we do, uh, you know. So, um, <clears throat> so we, wait, the word of the Lord. Oh yeah, How are, do we, what did you add? It? Yeah, yeah, thanks be to God. Yeah, well I heard, I heard thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like, what's liturgy, right? That's kind of how we feel. Um, so yeah, because that's God's word to us. Now, I just, just remember because it was about week two or three, uh, now we're in week 25, about week two or three, well, we were in January, we did Genesis chapter 12, and God gave a guy named Abram, whose name became Abraham, a promise, and that promise was for land, seed, descendants, blessing to the world, I will bless those who bless you, those who curse you, I will curse, and all the nations of the world will be blessed, and we tracked that even into the book of Galatians in the New Testament, about how Jesus is that promised seed that Abraham was promised, and that through Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But we have these promises continuing of kind of land, there's a people, there's a land, there's uh, a blessing that is gonna come, and this nation is gonna be great. And as we have followed this, we saw that we ended the book of Genesis in Egypt, and that wasn't the most encouraging. And then we get into the book of Exodus, and we have God saving his people out of their slavery in Egypt, and they are then wandering for 40 years. Remember, we went into the book of Numbers, and we saw how they wandered for 40 years because they were disobedient. They didn't believe that God would give them the land. They thought, the people in the land are too great, we can't do it. And so they wandered, and as the generations died out, but for two, right, two people who know God's good enough, he can do it, they got to go into the land. So the generation wiped out, Joshua, who was kind of the successor to Moses, Joshua led the people into the land, and we started um, taking the land, Israel started to take the land that God had given them. They don't do it perfectly. The whole book of Judges teaches us that, like, that, like they did, but they didn't drive out here, but they didn't drive out here, but they didn't drive out here. So for a good portion of history, we have these cycles in the book of Judges about how people are, uh, the nations around them oppress Israel, Israel cries out, God raises up a judge, that judge delivers them, and then that, there's peace in the land, and then after there's peace in the land, the judge dies and we start over, and this continues for about the first half to two-thirds of the book of Judges, 
And we end that with Samson. If you remember Samson with his hair, right? Samson had a lady problem, and um, <clears throat> he, uh, he had this strength that came from the Lord, but he was also incredibly arrogant. We end with Samson. Samson dies pushing on these pillars and the pillars fall in, and everyone dies, and then we end the book of Judges with just kind of this timeless story, uh, really two stories, about how uh, there was no king in the land, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So Judges kind of teaches us and moves us towards the need for this king, this kingdom that God is going to bring, which he promised and said there was going to be. In fact, as he's writing through Moses, we read in Deuteronomy, he's like, hey, there's going to be a king, and when there are kings, they need to act this way and not that way, they need to do this and not that. So it wasn't like Having a king was a new thing. Uh, God knew it was going to happen, and he was planning for that to happen. But Israel jumps the gun. Hey, we need a king. It's time, like the nations around us. So they tried to rush God's timing, and God's like, nope, that's not how I want it to roll. But they're rejecting me. Samuel, who was also uh, a minister and a judge, he said, "Um, do what they're asking. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Well, Saul is the first king of the nation of Israel, and Saul is a tall, good-looking guy, you know, kind of, no, just kidding. Um, I don't want his fate either. Uh, so they go after this kind of good, you know, face for TV guy, that's who they want, and um, he doesn't do too well. He's kind of a wimp, right? Like, you'd think he was this valiant guy, but he hides, he's afraid, uh, and he also tries to kind of jump the gun on certain things. He's like, well, I knew God wanted me to do this, but I thought this was better, so we did this instead. So God says to him through Samuel, you're not going to get the lineage of this kingdom. It's going to go to someone else. And in 1 Samuel, I believe, uh, chapter 16, is that where we are? I think we did a sermon on chapter 15. Uh, David is anointed, the youngest of his brothers, the tiniest, um, is the one that Samuel goes, you're going to be the king. So we have this kind of... Uh, from that point in time, the kingdom of Saul decreases and the influence of David increases until Saul's gone and David's king, right? Like, so David is now leading and David is called a man after God's own heart. Man after God's own heart. Now, as David is this guy who's after God's heart, of course, we've realized already he doesn't do perfectly. Um, he messes up a lot, but he goes back to the Lord in repentance. And uh, David has a son named Solomon. Solomon in all his wisdom, right? So he's this wise guy, and Solomon gets the kingdom after David. But we read about Solomon, and Solomon married a bunch of people and had a bunch of concubines and thought it would be better to please them than to please the Lord. And so he sets up ways for the nation to worship other gods, the gods of the nations that he is married to. And anybody who's married gets it. It's really hard to be divided and to be married. Usually someone ends up conceding. So Solomon, seated ground, and the ground he seated was the Lord's ground, and so God was like, we're not even going to have a a united kingdom, one king over the tribes, we're going to have it be divided. Ten tribes go to the north, two tribes go to the south. There are no good kings in the north, none. The Bible speaks of none of them being good. There are a handful of good kings in the south, but we, they have this as hundreds of years go on, we did last week, we saw um, 722 BC is when Assyria takes the northern kingdom, and 722 is the time we land on, but there were multiple times that uh, people were taken away, and then 586 is the time that the southern kingdom is taken away by Babylon, because a new superpower had shown up in the area. Now, that's a lot of intro stuff, isn't it? 
go, we keep going over this in hopes that maybe by the end of the year we go, I remember who Abraham is. Like that's, that's really all we're going for. Abraham, he was a guy in the Bible, right? Got it, check. So a lot of the prophets that we read show up around the time of the end of these kingdoms or around the time when the nations are in captivity, okay? And so, uh, or they speak return. Uh, so Ezekiel's one of those. Jeremiah speaks about this. Isaiah speaks about this. Those who will return, even though he wasn't showing up at the time of the exile. And Ezekiel is one of those, uh, one of those as well. So here are some matters that I titled for Lindsay, who looks at my notes and makes kid stuff. I said, introductory matter, introductory and boring matters. Uh, so that she knew that she didn't have to have the teachers do this part. So you get the introductory and boring matters. They're not really boring, but I just, I, we, have, we need some help in the understanding when you get into Ezekiel or you get into Daniel or you read Jeremiah or you read Isaiah, it is difficult to interpret what is going on. It is really difficult to grab those things. If anybody's like, boom, got it, like they're lying to you. So some people are better than others. Some people are really sharp with it. Some people have charts and graphs because they think those are cool. So like there's all kinds of stuff uh, that people do, but it is difficult to have a grid that fits together all of what we read as we get into the prophets. Really difficult. And you need to know kind of coming in that there are certain uh, decisions people make often heading into reading prophets that help them understand what's going on, okay? So this is like the pre-work before you get into the passage of Ezekiel. We haven't even gone into Ezekiel yet, have we? Because we're gonna go, what in the world is he talking about? Because Ezekiel is talking about how God's gonna restore people who are in exile. That's what he's doing. He's giving hope to people who are in exile. But he also promises some things that as we read it, we go, I feel like that's happened, but I don't feel like that's happened, right? Like if you kind of go, has this or hasn't this happened? There's some things where you're like, that seems to have happened, when you're talking about God putting his spirit within people, like we Christians kind of have a, we, we, we're remembering the day of Pentecost and we go, there was a thing that God did when his spirit came and prophecy was starting to be fulfilled. Like that seems like a thing that's happened. But, but like filled land and people all over knowing the Lord is God, clearly not everybody in the world knows the Lord is God yet. So has that happened? Doesn't, you know, maybe not happened. So there's three things that uh, I say kind of help us know or understand when we get into things how we're interpreting it. So thing number one is just how connected do you read or does one view Israel and the church, right? Like if we just kind of said there, you know, God's people are God's people. That's why I often use the phrase God's people instead of any specific Israel or church. But how does one track with these things? And is there a big difference between Israel and the Old Testament and Often what we see in the New Testament is the church, right? So some would say that like Israel has, in a sense, like the church is God's new people and it includes Israel or, Israel's gra- or the church is grafted into what God's done in Israel, but there's some difference on how much continuity exists between what we read. The second is if you read Revelation, Revelation is full of prophetic language, full of it. So if you read the last book of the Bible, Revelation, you're seeing all this stuff, if you don't have a grasp on the prophets, you don't really, and I'm the same way, like we don't really get what's going on because it's so dependent upon what we see in the prophets. But 
how does one read Revelation? So, so what goes on here, that's going to affect, specifically as you get to the end, you read about like these thousand years that are gonna show up, that affects how people will interpret when they read prophets, or how they read prophets, not when, I'm sorry. And then the third, and I use the word, what do I use? How literally, yeah, how literally one reads the words of scripture. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying literally is different than seriously, okay? So like, like, but some people, when it says up, it's like must mean up. When it puts a number, the number must mean the number exactly. When it says this, it must mean that. So how literally you read the words is going to affect what comes above, you know, it actually affects the things above it. It's gonna affect, like when I read a thousand years, it says a thousand years. When I read this, it says this. When I read this prophecy about a new temple, there must be a new temple. Like, and so those three things and guide, like when you're reading a commentary, because I know all you guys just have commentaries stacked up on your nightstands where you're reading them all the time. But if you're reading it, what's, what's, what's happening is that the people who are writing and teaching on scripture have already decided some of the, uh, like where they stand on these things, which then is going to affect how they read this, which is totally fine, right? Like we all need grids and theological systems that hold things together. Now, everyone's dying to understand, Hans, where do you stand, right? No one's ever asked me that. Maybe they have. I don't remember. But like cards on the table, there are some decisions I've made that help me. And you may not even know that because um, I don't, you know, I, like, I don't wear my, uh, my little things like stamps on my forehead or something like that, like the 144,000. Um, that was a joke about literal. Um, <laughs> But I do learn from all of these positions. Uh, if I took those three, I see, I would not say absolute discontinuity between the church and Israel, but I do see a distinction between Israel and the church. I do not think they are the same. Uh, I think that God is working out stuff for Israel still, but that salvation has always been through Jesus. Okay, so I just, I, 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 when I read like the, in Acts chapter one, when the apostles come to post-resurrection Jesus, and they're like, is this, the kingdom to Israel? Like they ask Jesus that question and Jesus is like, it's not for you to know that. Uh, so like I see that it seems, seems like God is still working something out for the nation that is a part of his salvation plan and that we get to benefit from because of Jesus, but it seems like God has some specific things he's working on Israel. Um, I do believe in a millennium because it helps me make sense of how in the world is everyone gonna know since we historically have done such a bad job of letting the world know that Jesus is real. It seems like if it's dependent upon us to usher in every tribe, tongue, and language knowing the Lord, we will fail, but it, does, it should never demotivate us from getting to every tribe, tongue, and language. It's just how does that work itself out? And then me, um, if I'm gonna take the words as literally as they can, unless there's a compelling reason not to. So those are kind of the, those are the building blocks that I use as I teach and as I specifically engage prophecy, uh, for those of you who are uh, still awake, I hope that that helps. But this is one thing that I wanna say. Uh, we just got back from out of town, we took a trip, we do this every year in the month of June, we go to Pine Cove Family Camp. And uh, we do this together and it, we, this was, we just finished up our eighth summer doing that. Um, and every time we go, we pack. And we pack a lot. 
I mean, we bring bags, and now, now we have baseball players in the house. We bring bat bags, and we bring bags to pack, and we bring a hamper, and we bring laundry detergent. Like, we, we just like, you don't want to see the amount of stuff that we bring. We bring a lot. Any theological system, and that's what this really is, there's a system that helps us think about this and helps us interpret, and there are traditions that help us make sense of what we're reading. Any one of those is really like packing. You're packing for a trip, okay? But you have more things to pack than you have room in the car. Because no system answers every question. And if somebody says, my system answers this question, it's not true. Because you're like, what about this? You're like, yeah, we just kind of leave that one on the curb when we drive because most of the other stuff fits. And so we're just going to let God figure that one out. So every system packs a lot into the vehicle of our kind of journey with the Lord. But we always have to kind of go, we don't really know what to do with that one. So regardless of where one lands there, somebody's going to go, like, there will be somebody to go, that's a really good point, and I, don't have, I have a decent counterpoint, but not a great one, because I don't know what to do with that. And so anybody who's honest about how they engage the scriptures will say, or should say, I'm really not sure how this fits, but it still seems to best fit here. So some of us are driving down the road with like another suitcase just out the window because there was no room in the car, right? Like <clears throat> we have stuff on top. One of them are like, well, just throw out a couple of things in the suitcase so we can jam it in. And so we all do that. That's where we are. As we read Ezekiel covenant, what God is doing, we will see things that we go, this seems to be answered, this one doesn't. And I want to start with the Wizard of Oz. If I only had a heart. Right? Like that's what the passage really in our memory verse was really about today, wasn't it? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to follow my statutes and carefully obey my ordinances. Now, Jeremiah speaks of the new covenant explicitly. He uses that language, new covenant. That's not um, the same type of, you don't hear new covenant, but you hear new, new, new. God's going to do a work. And so Ezekiel is also a new covenant verse or new covenant passage, but it has a bit of a different tone. It has hope, but it also has some judgment attached to it, doesn't it? If you're reading it. So this is where We begin with the first paragraph, verses 16 through 21, with this idea. God's people misrepresent him. And you can even see there, in that point, how I made a a theological decision, right? Like the passage is about Israel, but I'm applying it to all of us because it's true for all of us, but Israel is our example in this, right? So I didn't say Israel because that might exclude you. You do it too, every time. And so this is what happened. Son of man, verse 17, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their words and their deeds. We saw all that they did not honor the Lord. So he poured out his wrath for the blood which they had shed. Verse 19, he scattered them amongst the nations. We saw the captivity that they have gone through. They were dispersed. Verse 20, though. But when they came to the nations, they profaned God there. The nation said, essentially this, these are the God's people? Like, they're not even in their land. So verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had to which they came. 
So God sent Israel into, and Judah, into the, into the nations as punishment for their disobedience. <clears throat> and what God is saying right here is, even when you went there, <clears throat> my name was profaned because they looked at you and they did not see your faithfulness. And they looked at your judgment of leaving the land and they were like, some God in Israel. Some God in Israel. God was concerned. Heart, you read it in Genesis 12, you saw it in the, in the blessing to be, multiply and fill the earth. God's heart is for the world to know him. The world to know him. And so when people are sent into exile, there even would be a hope there. The recognition of their disobedience, Israel would turn to the Lord, follow after him, and the nations in which they now exist could turn to the Lord as well, but that didn't happen. Why? Because God's people then misrepresented him and now misrepresent him. But God is concerned about his name. Verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name. And it's not hard for us to recognize how disobedient we are and also to recognize that we who are in Christ are God's people and often God is understood by those who don't know him by observing his people, right? Like that, like whether or not you want to be someone who represents God if you're in Christ, you don't really get that choice. The choice you get is just to seem how faithfully do you do that? But people watch. Your kids watch. Your neighbors watch. And get impressions of who the Lord is based upon how faithful you are. We can't do away with that. And along with that, God is greatly concerned that people would know him. I had concern for my name. Why? Because he knows he's best. He knows he's greatest. He knows he's mightiest. So he had concern for his name. You represent the Lord. People know in part who the Lord is because of how you live, how you speak, how you encourage, how generous you are, how kind you are, how joyful you are. Those things reflect the character of your God. And what he is saying here in Israel is, you didn't do it, so I cast you out. And when I cast you out, you still didn't do it. But now it's even worse because people's view of me is being diminished throughout the nations. Well, God's not okay with that. God's not okay with that. So he gives a solution that God will restore his people. He's like, you cause a problem, and this is, like, this is always what God does, right? You did something you can't get out of, so I'm going to fix it. You did something you can't change. You've never evidenced being able to change because I know who you are, and I know your hearts. You've done this. I am the only one who can fix this. And so God provides a solution to his people, which are new hearts, new spirit. The things that drive our affections, the things that drive how we're led by the Spirit, that's what God gives. So verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my name. I'm about to act for my name. 
which you have profaned amongst the nations. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And look what he starts to say. This is what I will, and sometimes it's just so good to circle how many times we read the phrase, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Like when you read these things in the Bible, you will realize the things that we will do aren't good and the things that God will do are good. That's basically the theme. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Now when he says that to uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, he's like, and then you will. But it's God moving and God acting first. So verse 24, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land so they will see you returned and restored. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean from your uncleanness and from your idols, I will cleanse you. From your idols, I will cleanse you. I will bring you back and I will cleanse you. Then, memorize, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'm gonna take your heart of stone like the tin man. Well, he doesn't have a heart. And I'll give you a heart of flesh, one that beats, one that feels, one that's real. I will put my spirit within you and thus cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey my rules, my ordinances. You'll be able to do the things that I've said for you to do. Live the way that I want for you to live. And I will deliver you all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. Those are the times where I go, those things don't seem to have happened yet. Some seem to have happened, some don't. Like, there are still famines. People still experience it. So I go, that, unless I try to find some way to say that that has happened spiritually, that part doesn't seem to have happened. That's where I kind of go, there's more to come here. We're like, this isn't, I don't look at Ezekiel 36 and go, boom, fulfilled. Like, I'm like, partially fulfilled, but more is to come. So he will deliver them. He will make the fruit, the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that they'll never suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then by God's grace and his generosity and his kindness, at that point, they will remember their evil ways and that their deeds were not good. They will loathe for themselves their iniquities and their abominations. <clears throat> and God goes, it's not for your sake that I will act. Whose sake? It's for his sake. So God will restore his people. And this, in essence, is the way God works. This, in essence, is the gospel message. You could not save yourself. God sent his son Jesus into the world that through faith in him, we might have life. That that is how we move from death to life and it is not by our own doing. In the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do so that we might walk in them. God is the one who saves, God is the one who moves, God is the one who provides the good works, God is the one who does this, and he does it for his sake because he wants people to know him because his own people do a miserable job of reflecting him. And so this is what he's saying. I will put within you the things that you need to have in order to do the things that reflect me to this world. 
So we, this is, this is the gospel. God, we cause the problem and God provides the solution. Every time. That is the grace of God. Because they had worked themselves into such a position that there was no way out. No amount of goodness and you know, right-headedness and chicken, you know, doing things, checking it out, being a good husband, being a good wife being a good friend, being a good neighbor, no amount of cleaning up your act changes your heart. That's one of the fundamental things that we have to realize is that everyone in this room has a heart problem. And you cannot fix your heart externally. But it requires a unique work of the Lord and a unique movement of God in order to happen. And so what God is saying, even as he is speaking condemnation in a sense on Israel in Ezekiel 36 and saying, you have done it wrong and for my sake I will do it. And this is the big difference I'd say between Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah when he speaks in the new covenant is throughout Ezekiel, God keeps going, it's not for your sake, it's not for your sake, it's not for your sake, it's not for your sake. And the coolest thing to me, or one of the coolest things about the gospel message is this, is that we get to benefit better than we could have ever imagined by God being concerned about who he is and how people know him. Like there isn't a, like, like we couldn't have predicted or provided or planned a better outcome because God has his priorities right. And this is why I want to encourage anybody who hasn't joined the reading plan to just join in on the reading plan even is because God knows what is best for us and it is him He is what is best for us. And that's what he's saying. I'm gonna put my spirit in you. So I'm I'm gonna identify you with me fully and eternally that we will be seen together. I will be your God and you are my people. I will do this for my sake because I know that is what is best for everyone. And then what happens because of that? People know that he is God. Because remember, in that first paragraph, this was the motivation that got us to God doing his new work. The motivation was, you disobeyed, and you were punished, and even as you were punished, you continue to disobey, and now my reputation is being multiplied as bad, and that's not okay. <clears throat> Remember, yesterday, or last week, we used the illustration of like, what if you let somebody move into your house, <clears throat> you know, take your name, take your house, take your address, and they just ripped it to shreds. We used that as a way to talk about the goodness of God and the patience of God, Again, somebody said, yeah, I, I'd go two days letting somebody do that before I just kick them out. And God, the Northern Kingdom, 200 years of disobedience before he did any movement and any kind of big discipline like that. So God is incredibly gracious and incredibly kind, incredibly patient with his people. But not only that, because this gives us the other side, right? So they went into uh, their captivity because of their disobedience, but then God is still concerned about how the house looks, And so he fixes it. He doesn't even say to Israel, and he doesn't even say to us as church, oh, you need to go in there and get it right. He goes, you can't get it right, so I'll make it right. You can't do it. You can't clean it. All you really bring to the table is nothing. 
And that is not enough to do what is needed here. So he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, and then you will. Why? I mean, we can just take the last two verses, 37 and 38. Thus says the Lord, because I think in this we have embedded the idea of the church. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do, to increase their people like a flock. Increase their people. Like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during the point of peace. So, I, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That God's people are multiplying throughout the cities. They're being seen throughout the cities. Then, as God's people are all over, then they, the nations, will know that I am the Lord. This for us is why the task of church planting does not end. It is for us why the task of gospel proclamation in spring does not end. It's why going to the people who have never heard of the gospel should be a priority for us as a church. Why, when I get to pick, should we go to this reached place or this unreached place? Why should we pick the unreached? Because we want people who have not known and not heard about the Lord to have an opportunity to respond in faith to the message of the gospel. And so we will prioritize it wherever we can and however we can to move the good news of Jesus towards those, those who have not heard it so that people will know that he is God. That his people might increase. And we do see, if you read through Ezekiel 36, many of those things seem to have begun. The Spirit coming into the world and cleansing us and sealing us for the day when the Lord returns, that we are now in Christ. Now, Christ did not come at this time. We are now but in Christ together. We are united with him. We are a building being built up, and God is not going to take that away from us. We have been given a message to proclaim the gospel to all who need it, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Go and declare that Jesus is risen, and identify those people who have professed faith through baptism, and train them up, disciple them, so that they can grow in a knowledge of him, and so that people might know, as they are uh, ambassadors, people there to proclaim the good news wherever they might be sent by the Lord. Three things, and one of those words, ambassador, is one of the ones I want us to grab onto as we think about this passage. First is grace. I was talking to, uh, we use the phrase uh, gospel-centered a lot, and I was talking to a mentor pastor of mine that I had in seminary, uh, and he was like, Hans, I hear guys say gospel-centered all the time, like, where's the gospel, where's the gospel, where's the gospel, where's the gospel? Like, like he's like, and I, he's honestly, in this, at this time he's probably in his 50s, he's like, I don't really understand what you guys mean he said, you guys like guys in their 20s and 30s, when you say that. He goes, because when they start to explain it, all I really hear them saying is grace. Like, like, like go tell people about the good grace of God that they can receive in Jesus. Like, that's what I'm hearing when people try to explain it. <clears throat> I know some of you, you know, uh, closet or armchair theologians are going, oh, no, 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 being gospel-centered means, means much more. But if, if following after Jesus means anything, 
it means grace. If knowing the Lord means anything, it's because of his grace. If our salvation is acquired by anything other than God's grace, then it's not salvation. And so we need to remember that even in Ezekiel 36, while God is speaking about his people misrepresenting him, what is he saying? I'm gonna do this work. 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 I will do it. And one of the hardest things for us to do is recognize that we cannot save ourselves and cast ourselves on the work of Jesus on our behalf. Because it says to us, every time we remind ourselves of that truth and we put our faith in Jesus, we are saying, I couldn't do it myself. And we train our kids and we train our friends and we train up people to always be able to do it themselves. And so then when we proclaim a message that says, you could never do it yourself, JK, you're like, you can't do that. It makes sense that they would be confused. Wait, I can do anything you said. Well, anything except save yourself, but anything else fits. We have to make grace the dominant theme of how we operate as a church. Full of grace and truth, Jesus came, full of both. People who have been saved by grace, when they go, you could do nothing right, but I'm gonna go ahead and do the work to get you there, The more we realize what God has done for us, the more grateful we become, the more humble we become. We can live with humility, kindness, generosity. We're not trying to level up and be better than anybody else in this room. I talk to my kids about that a lot. Like, when I I encourage one who's done done something well, the other one's like, ah, I could do that too. I get it, I know you can. Like, you're you're great, you're both great. Like, uh, we want this kind of equalizing everybody's on the same thing, but the Christian goes, I'm not equal. I'm the worst. I'm actually the worst in the room. And the crazy thing is, all of us own that title. The worst in the room. And so all we need to be doing is just outworsting each other. That's really it. Because the work of Jesus on our behalf, remembering God's grace, understanding God's grace, teaches us to follow him surrendered and that we did nothing. We did nothing to attain the position that we have. Nothing. And one of the moments that can fill us with pride the most is when we say, I did that. I did that. We can't do that when it comes to our salvation. So then from that idea of grace, which is the first thing I want us to hear, the grace of God through Jesus for us sinners to make us like him and save us we then need to recognize that we are ambassadors. In Christ, we are ambassadors. What is an ambassador? It is one who goes on behalf of another, generally another country, to represent, not themselves, but to represent the one who sent them. Everybody in this room who, through faith in Jesus, is a Christian, is an ambassador. And the Lord is concerned about how he is represented. Even while we say, I can't do it right. And I can't do it enough. But that's the difference between the justification, the being made right with God, and the growing in godliness that is then the rest of our lives. Is that we represent him. 
We are ambassadors. And we need to be able to say why we live the way that we do and speak the way that we do and spend the way that we do and use our time the way that we do. We need to be able to say why and how those reflect the character of the one who sent us. And then remember Matthew 28. Know your mission. Not like the God's called me necessarily to like run a mile or whatever it might be. Like know that everybody who is a Christian has been given the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teaching them. Baptizing the name. Teaching them to be trained up. That we have been given something to continually go and proclaim good news and declare it and train people up to grow in who Jesus is, and then you see it come full circle, right? Because you go, God has saved me by his grace, and I am there to represent him, and I'm there to proclaim, but I know even when I proclaim, I don't feel worthy to preach a gospel that I clearly don't live out the way that I want, going back up to ambassador, which then pushes us back up to the front, which is, it's God's grace. <laughs> like, it's always God's grace. And that in and of itself, and the humility that that gives to a brother or sister in the Lord is often much more compelling to somebody who doesn't know the Lord than, oh, I have an answer for that. Let me tell you why what you're doing is wrong. Let me tell you about how that thing is not what God wants. Let me tell you that. Like, like grace is much more attractive and disgusting than anything else you try to bring. Because we go, man, I need that. And in the same breath, man, I hate that. I hate that I need it. Because I want to be able to earn it myself. And so as we think about these things, we are an ambassador, we represent him, so we want to grow like that. He's given us a commission to proclaim him. And as we do that, we of course do not feel worthy. It brings us back to grace. It brings us back to you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it, you can't do it, you won't do it, but God will. Because he's concerned about his name and how he is known.